Father, we come this morning giving you our praise. We come lifting up all of the things that we bring into this morning, all of the fears we have, all of the worries we have, all of the distractions we have, all of the failures and, and sins that we've committed this week. We replace those things by leaving them at your throne and, and lifting up our praises to you. By recognizing and celebrating how good you are, how good you've been to us, the promise we have in your Son and your Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that you would come and speak to us in a powerful way. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. How is everyone today? Awesome. Good to see everyone this morning. Uh, I missed you last week. Uh, I have a lot of thanks to give to Jake for preaching um, in my place. Um, Have you ever had that moment in your job, perhaps, where you are, you know, you are reintroduced to the kind of impact that you can make? Where the the passion that hopefully you maybe had when you started um, your vocation kind of jumps back to you, and you realize why you do what you do, and you realize the possibilities that you have, or or perhaps, you know, it's in a person's life, in a relationship that you have. You are able to, to bless somebody, to, to, to lift them up, um, to be generous and, and encouragement to them. And you are reminded, right, how, how good it is, how we're almost wired to, to live like this. And you're reminded of the possibilities that exist when you tap into the plan that God has for our lives. This last weekend, I was speaking at a, a youth retreat, and it's a cool deal. Uh, about 12 churches get together every year um, and, and bring all their kids, and it's uh, like a 30-year thing that's gone on. So a lot of the youth pastors who are there and the adult leaders, volunteers, actually went to the camp as kids. It's a weird thing to kind of walk into for the first time. Um, you got this like 30-year community going on, and uh, about 500 kids or so, and it was just a really neat experience. It was one of those moments for me where I remembered why I did what I did, and where I remembered what's possible um, when the body of Christ comes together uh, and loves on people and, and ministers to people and presents the truth and praise and worships together. Um, Saturday night, we uh, had an altar call, which is, I, I don't normally do an altar call at retreats. Um, that says more about me than anything else. Um, I grew up thinking it, it was a little ineffective, um, the school I went to did an altar call every week. It was the same kids every week. So by like the 30th time, you're like, I don't know what we're trying to accomplish uh, anymore. Let's, we should move on to the next step maybe. Um, but we, they asked it, if I could do an altar call, and, and so I did. And it was just mind-blowing. We had about 500 kids, about four dozen come forward and just collapse in tears in the arms of the youth pastors and pray and pray and pray. And, and I'm standing back there, um, with the band, and we're kind of eyeing each other. They're playing, and, and we're all just blown away. Um, and, you know, afterwards, I'm talking with the, the, the band and um, some of the other people they had hired to come in for the weekend, and we were just so humbled by the experience. That was the constant theme throughout the whole kind of conversation or reflection on what had happened was, that's not just a good sermon. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a good preacher, right? I was really funny. I'm really cute. I mean, it just, it always goes solid. Um, your laughter is encouraging. Thank you. I woke up today with like an okay self-esteem, so that's good. It bumps me down. 
where I need to be. Um, but right, that's more than just a good sermon. That's more than just good worship, which it was good worship. Um, that's more than just a, an, a, an environment that the leaders had put together, which they had put together this incredible environment. But that is you standing back and seeing God work. And, and I've done this long enough and I've experienced it myself that I know for some of these students, right, it will come and pass and, and won't be a big part of their life. But I know for some of them, this will be the defining moment in their faith. This will be the, the marker of what God uh, did to them and, and through them in their youth. Um, and it was that moment where I sat back and just thought, wow. Like, how awesome is it that I got to come here this weekend and, and play a part in, in, in God redeeming human beings and God calling people out of patterns of sin, out of um, depression, out of negative relationships, and as I reflected and as I was coming back to, to the church and, and, and to home here in Sugarland, I just couldn't get off my mind that this is what's on offer for us every day. And even as a pastor, it's easy for me to forget this. It's easy for me to kind of lose focus on this. But you and I, as a community and as individuals, we have all that we need to make eternal impacts. I mean, to really make a difference to enjoy that sense of accomplishment and be humbled by how God can work so powerfully through us. We're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and and this morning Jesus um, will teach on the impact that you and I can have as believers. And so it was kind of um, providential timing here. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. We'd love for you to see it in the Bible so you know I'm just not making things up. We started our series on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous, most powerful sermon Jesus preached two weeks ago. I was gone last week, so we're picking it back up, part two, this morning. And we'll begin in verse 13. Just a small little passage we'll read this morning and unpack together. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to everything in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, who started singing Newsboys at the end of that? I know some of you did. This is a real famous passage, and it's hard to say that because most of the Sermon on the Mount is pretty famous. It's pretty recognizable. So, so people like me with no time on their hands um, do surveys, and, and what we've researched in the American culture is most of the big parts of the Sermon on the Mount are familiar to most people. The problem is, we often have a, a difficulty because most people won't quote Jesus for it. So you'll give them like this passage and be like, who said it? Jesus of Nazareth, Martin Luther King Jr., Kendrick Lamar, Steph Curry. And almost every time it's Martin Luther King Jr., um, which to be fair, he did say a lot of this stuff, but he was kind of taking it from the source, right? 
Um, but it's, it's a familiar passage. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard this multiple times. Um, it's been um, preached on multiple times. Um, like I said two weeks ago, my goal in our series in the Sermon on the Mount is to try to kind of clear away our assumptions and have us just read the text, hear the sermon as if it was for the first time. So Jesus is talking to this group of people in front of him, talking about his kingdom that is arriving, talking about how people should live in response to that kingdom. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He gives two kind of metaphors for identity here. Um, and a couple things we need to notice. First is this you in, in Greek is you plural. So we're reading the Bible like Texans. And so it's, it's y'all are the salts of the, the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. This is important, right? Jesus is talking to a community. Too often we take community statements and community promises, and because we have this glitch in the English language that we've fixed down south, um, because we have this glitch, we read it as individual promises, individual statements. And so I'm like, I'm a tiny little grain of salt. That's cool. I'm this like nice smelling candle in the world. But this is not really Jesus' primary intent. It's true of us individually, but he's speaking to his community. Together as the people who follow Jesus, as the people who live the life of Jesus, who, who pattern their life after the teachings, an example of Jesus. It's this community of people. It's their life together. It's their witness to the world, their service to the community that is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The you is emphatic in the way it's, it's framed in the Greek. It's fronted in the sentence. Um, you, it's, it's a, a kind of polemical thing. You are the salt of the earth, not the temple, not Jerusalem, not the Torah, not just ethnic Jews. He says, no, the people who are assembled around me, you are the salt of the earth. And this the in front of salt is often not found in, in Greek constructions like this. So we say, again, it's emphatic. You are the salt of the earth, not just a salt, not just table salt, spicy salt. Is that a thing? I don't know. You are the light, not, not a light. This is a very high view Jesus gives of his community of believers. This is a high calling that we're given. Notice, though, like the Beatitudes, Jesus is not saying you should be the salt of the earth. You should be the light of the world. It's a statement. He's um, giving us, through grace, through our association with him, a high view of our community. We are the salt. We are the light. And as Jesus says these things, these, these two metaphors, we come into a couple of problems. Um, so these metaphors are surprisingly ambiguous. They seem to make sense on face value, right? If you don't think about it too much, you're like, yeah, of course, this makes sense. But when you start kind of peeling away, you, you open the door of the metaphor, it starts to get a little cloudy and a little confusing. And that often is the way some metaphors work. Um, and what preachers are so often tempted to do is we overdevelop a metaphor. So we'll take what it says, and then we'll apply like three things we think about that and twist that into like a really cute illustration for three things. And oftentimes, we really just need to kind of relax, right? And just, this is what it says. And we can explore different things, but as we explore it, it's only really helpful in as much as it represents things that the Scripture teaches elsewhere. 
I mean, the church, theologians, biblical scholars, pastors, preachers, has a, a long and rich tradition of reading the Bible allegorically, a long and rich tradition of seeing things in the text that might not be there literally, but are, are so foundational in the entire Bible that once you, you assume these truths, you start to see it in different places. And I think that's how we should approach these, these metaphors. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So, I mean, just at face value, this question is a little weird. Salt is salt is salt. It's a tautology, right? If, if, if salt is no longer salty, then it's just not salt, right? That's not a thing really that salt does. It just kind of loses its flavor. Now, salt can combine with other things and become impure. Thought, salt can, can kind of be watered down. Um, but what people have done throughout history is, is thought, right? Jesus doesn't give us, what does salt do? You know, we put it on the rims of our, um, you know, juice and water. And <laughs> a lot of drinkers here. That's, that, that joke didn't go over so well at the youth the retreat. Um, they laughed, but it was like, a, oh, no. I, I, in my research this week, I, I found at least solid 17 different interpretations of salt, which might surprise you, but I also did a lot of reading about salt. In fact, too much reading about salt. And if I never have to read another word about salt, I'll be okay. I'm trying to, to dig out this, this metaphor here. Salt, and as I've discovered, is kind of like the theory of everything for a chemical compound. Like in the history of the world, Salt has been used or attempted to be used for almost everything, from medicine to food to war. I mean, it's really kind of um, interesting how, how versatile salt can be and is thought to be. Um, so often what, what people will say when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, is they'll say salt does some basic things, right? Salt preserves things. So, so maybe we're the preservative of the world. Um, and there's some truth to that maybe, but again, you kind of ask some questions when you start to overdevelop these metaphors. What are we preserving? The status quo? I mean, clearly Jesus is not getting at that, right? Jesus has come to flip things upside down. He's come to redefine God's people. He's come to launch this revolution. Have we come to preserve like good old Christian values? Because that wasn't a thing back then. No one would have understood that. Oh yeah, like the 40s. Leave it to Beaver. What are we preserving? Maybe, maybe the, the, the love of God in creation we could be preserving. The, the, the ancient yet modern mission of God in the world to redeem and, and bring healing and light and justice and hope and peace. Others have, have said, well, salt flavors things. It's, it's a flavor to, to meat. Um, and, and we said, well, maybe we're the flavor of the world, which is a little more fun. We're supposed to jazz the world up a little bit. You know, we, we used to, when I first got hired here about nine years ago, have a benediction at the end of service where, I don't know if anyone remembers this. Yeah, a couple people. We would say, as part of this little uh, poem benediction, um, help us to be salt in a world that's lost its flavor. And it's kind of always stuck with me. That's my go-to thought when I, I hear this, this metaphor. And there is taste mentioned, right? Jesus mentions what is wrong is it's lost its taste. It's supposed to be this kind of saltiness to it, this, this flavor to it. Um, so maybe we're supposed to bring life to, to deadly situations. Maybe we're supposed to bring um, love to hateful relationships. Maybe we're supposed to 
splash up our world with, with life, with the resurrection life. So salt in the first century came from the shores of the Dead Sea for these Galileans. Um, it did lots of things. It flavored things. It was a preservative. It also purified things. Um, it also was used in sacrifice. Um, so in Leviticus, when the sacrifices are prescribed for the Israelites, they are to put salt on their sacrifices. So it, it becomes kind of a covenant symbol for the Israelites. It's needed to maintain your relationship in the Old Testament with God. It has this kind of religious connotation. Then the most interesting thing I learned, Chris um, brought this to my attention a week ago, was um, salt is an act of war. Anyone know this? So, so apparently you can scatter salt on farmland and it ruins the land. You're unable to grow crops. This was a common practice in ancient times. You would come, you would defeat the, the people who lived in that land, and then you'd just salt it. And it would be worthless. It'd be ruined. Um, apparently, it's one of those things where you learn something and you see it everywhere. Has that ever happened to you? You learn a new word, and now everyone's saying it. You're like, you haven't always been saying these things. So I'm, I'm just Googling this, right? The first Wikipedia entrance is salting the earth, the act of war. Um, the um, climate change scientists, this is a big deal for them. Um, with things changing, they're like, there's more salt in our world. We're, we're using it um, and, and, and just, just um, getting rid of it in different ways that aren't so great. And it's going to affect our environment, affect our farmland. We're going to have less and less farmland to feed people um, as this kind of salt production um, overflows. Um, so there's a sense that some have argued Jesus here is making kind of a radical claim. You are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the land, could be translated. You are meant to go um, change the status quo. In a world of hate and, and power, you're supposed to bring love and forgiveness and service. You're supposed to shake up the powers that are with the, the love and life of Jesus. Now, now, here's what I think. I think you can't, like I said, narrow in on one interpretation of the metaphor. They're all useful in as much as, again, they bring out an aspect of Scripture, a, a truth that's found in the Bible that helps us understand our role. The real emphasis in the first metaphor seems to be on the negative aspect, on what happens if salt stops being useful in whatever it is. He says, if, if, it, if it's no longer salty, how can it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This thrown out language in Matthew is, is used about six, seven times. And except for this passage, it's always clearly in the context of judgment. This is what God will do on the final day. He'll throw out the unrighteous, those who not believe and, and follow Jesus. This is a, a warning to the community. You are the salt of the earth, but if you stop being that salt, you're useless. There's no point. I have no need for you anymore. You have kind of gutted yourself of the whole reason that you exist. It's a, it's a kind of scary warning. He then says, you are the light of the world. This is a little bit easier of a metaphor to understand. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So in, in ancient times, um, first century, when you do not have lights everywhere, kind of like if you go out on a ranch and you look up at the stars because there's less ambient light, um, you could actually see big cities from very, very far away, like other cities. 
Um, so in Galilee, um, there were two or three cities that you could see if it was lit up at night. Jerusalem was really famous for being able to be seen from all over the place. It was actually kind of set on a hill. It says you, you light up a city, it can't be hidden. No one takes a light and, and, and puts a bowl over it, puts it under a basket. That's just silly. A light impacts something, impacts darkness, reveals something, shines. Like salt impacts light, impacts. And he says, in the same way, he kind of explains the metaphor for us this time. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the light is our good works. And when we shine the light, people respond by seeing not us, but the Father. In this sense, our good works are transparent. When people see our good works, they don't see you. They see the one who gave you those gifts, the one who has so loved and called you. So we've got to remember, as, as with a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount, this is first true about Jesus, just like the Beatitudes. Who is poor in spirit? It's Jesus. Who is persecuted for righteousness' sake? It's Jesus. Who is merciful? It's Jesus. Who is the salt of the earth? Who is the light of the world? Well, it's Jesus. He is a city on a hill being crucified. He is the one whose good works bring people to the Father. He is the one who does not lose his saltiness. He, he remains faithful to the end. He never gives up or abandons his, his purpose. This light of the world image is, is actually pretty common in the Scriptures. So in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, it's often used to represent mission. God says, I will shine my light to the nations. I will bring my light to every end of the world. And it's this this aspect that Jesus is getting at, which is that our good works are one way that we witness to God's love. Um, We have speech. We can tell people about how God loves them. That's important. But we can also serve them. We also live out God's love. And in some aspects, that's the most powerful way to witness. A lot of people can talk. Not a lot of people can back it up, can live it. I know for me, in, in our community, one of the ways that I experience God's love and I can trust in God's love is because the community of believers that God has put around me loves me, despite my flaws. They're the, they're the physical embodiment of God's love. I can trust that God can love me because the people he has loved can also love me. It's a real possibility. They bear witness through their good works to the Father, the light of the world. This, this text is all about impact. It's the kind of influence we have in the world, the kind of influence we dare not throw away as the church. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide the light under a bowl. It's, it's useless at this point. Instead, bear good works that bring all to the, the Father. This warning, I think, is huge in our lives. There's a tendency in all of us, I think, as Christians, in, in me, to, to kind of lose focus of the great mission. To kind of lose focus of, of, of why we're really alive. You know, in the, in the Scriptures, baptism or discipleship, choosing to follow Jesus, is your ordination into the mission field. It is your commission. Um, Every Christian is given a new vocation 
that supersedes any vocation they might have chosen or come into beforehand. Um, any vocation they have is a servant now to the larger vocation. I'm a doctor, but I, through my, my practice, I love people. Through my practice, I bear good works that lead to the Father. I'm a, I'm a dentist, and, and I don't know how you solve that one. Um, <laughs> if there's dentists in here, I'm sorry. Um, I do do counseling during the week, and we can work on that. Um, I had some bad dental encounters, and so I'm working through that myself. But I assume that they can do good. Um, your dentist, right? Your, your practice is to hopefully do good. That's the best I got with that. Um, I shouldn't have gone there. If you're a teacher in the classroom, and how you relate to students, if you're a pastor, if you're a youth pastor, if you're a volunteer, if you're good at making money, those gifts now are in service to the, the grand mission of God. This, this mission that has existed from eternity. So there's this thing we call the missio dei, the, the mission of God. God has been on a mission to redeem and to love and to save and to rescue his creation since the beginning. And the, the brilliant part about this is you and I get invited to experience this. God doesn't need us to save people. God doesn't need us to, to, to speak for him, to move for him. It's kind of like an invitation. It's kind of like an honor. We're, God is saying, hey, come play with me. I'm, I'm doing the coolest thing that has ever been done in history. And I want you to have a, a role. I want you to stand there and be in awe of what's happening. I want, you to, I want you to be a participant and be reminded of God's love in your own life. Have these light bulbs go off all the time and realize, that's why I do what I do. That's the influence and impact that I can have when God works through me when I'm faithful to following Jesus. This mission we are called to join. But there's this, this tendency toward entropy, right? Um, there's this tendency to lose our saltiness. To, to start to turn in on ourselves, to, to, in a sense, give up that impact. I think for some of us, this comes from some sense of humility, right? No one knows how bad you are more than yourself, hopefully, right? It's usually ourselves who keep us up at night. In AA, they've got a statement, right? You're only as sick as your secrets, Whatever your, your darkest secret is and no one knows, that's, that's really what's holding you back right there. In the Christian community, we're, we're able to confess there's no shame because Jesus took our shame. There's no, there's no guilt because Jesus took our guilt. So we're able to come and, and, and cast off those secrets and, and come into the light. So, so for some of us, it's just a matter of thinking God can't possibly work through me. And the great part is God actually likes working through losers. Paul says, look, I'm the most screwed up person in the world. And it's in the Bible. So, you know, he has some authority when he says this. And he says, yet God works through me. He says, God actually likes working through people you wouldn't expect it from. Because it, it's more transparent that way, right? It's less like, oh, yeah, that person would do that because they're just amazing. And more like, wow, no one would ever expect that from them. There must be something else happening here. I mean, the Bible reads um, like a who's who of who book, right? Moses, like God's best friend in the Old Testament, 
leads the, the Israelites out of the Egyptian slavery that they're in, the Exodus. He's a murderer with his bare hands. I mean, it's pretty gangster. King David, right, had a taste for blood and woman. And it hurt him over and over and over and over again. And here's the weird thing if you read that story closely. It doesn't really end. There's no, like, clean conversion point in David's life where he all of a sudden stops wanting to kill people, where he all of a sudden stops wanting to, to, to you know, engage with women in an appropriate way. In fact, I think on his deathbed, he's, he's ordering things God's told him not to do. Hey, you see that group of people? Go kill them in my honor. Yet this is the guy who has a heart after God's own heart. God used powerfully. The 12 disciples, right? They had nothing going for them, really. And they fulfill, in a sense, Jesus' statement right here, right? If you just look historically, Jesus is making a, a preposterous claim. This group of motley Galilean peasants is going to transform the world. They're the salt of the world. They're the light of the world. And yet we stand now in 2017 and go, wow, they did it. No message in history has ever been as powerful, has ever been as widespread, has ever been as fruitful as the gospel has. And it's our job to realize we're standing in that place. We're not observers looking from the outside. We're in this tradition. We're in this community. All that God has done through anybody that you can think of, he can do through us, he can do through you, our community. This afternoon, I'll be going to our area assembly. Um, I'm in charge of uh, the congregational vitality ministry, so kind of gauging the life of churches. And in and, and, and the parlance of kind of people who do this, um, we often will say things that sound kind of weird at first, but we'll say, like, that church needs to die. Churches, like organizations, like people, have life cycles, right? Sometimes the best thing is to close their doors. Sometimes the worst thing is to try to, like, Keep it open until the last person dies. It might be better to invest those resources in a church that has its pulse on the community, that's reaching people. But, but really the common theme through churches is a church starts to die slowly but surely when they stop looking outward and start looking inward. When they go from holding hands, facing outward, and they turn around. And look at each other and they say, hey, what's more comfortable for us? What do we like the most? What doesn't push us that much? There's no in-between, there's no neutral ground between a church that's growing and a church that's dying. To be neutral is to be slowly falling. We have a mission, a grand mission. And we are the light of the world. The impact that we can have. It's amazing. What, what Jesus is trying to get us to do here as his people is reimagine our identities, reimagine our purpose. It's so easy to get caught up in, okay, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm a firefighter. That we kind of limit ourselves to that. We kind of box ourselves in. And Jesus says, imagine, just imagine what it would feel like to make a disciple. Just imagine what it would feel like to have the impact that is on offer here for us. 
And then take that imagination, take that motivation, take that honor and, and, and kind of run through every area in your life and see how you can do this through relationships. See how you can do this through your, your workplace. See how you can do this through your family. Even through the church. And we have small groups. We have um, our worship night coming up this Saturday, or I'm sorry, this Wednesday evening. And there's this tendency, right, this kind of naturalness to think that what we do in church is about us. We like to worship, so we're going to have a worship night. But in reality, everything we do should be outward focused, which doesn't exclude us worshiping and growing. It actually adds to it. And so when we have a worship night, my first thought is, who might enjoy worship with us? They could go to another church. That's not the, the point of this. Who might be benefited by a night of worship with other believers? And we have groups meeting, and we have events. We, we, we're thinking outward. If there are times you know, during the year here at the church when you feel like your needs aren't being completely met, I think that's a success. Because really, we're trying to meet the needs of people who aren't here yet. And we'll meet those needs the best. We'll meet our own needs the best when we are looking for those people. Ask someone who's gone on a mission trip how much they grew in their faith. I mean, those are the moments that transform. It's in practicing that we root ourselves in our faith and in the love of God. Not in sitting and enjoying our own company. And so this morning, I, I just want us to hear this with, with fresh ears, to, to read it with fresh eyes. I want you to hear, I want us to hear as a community, that, these statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then it's up to us to, to run with that. And I want to run. And I hope you are with me. Let me invite you to pray with me. Father, we, we come this morning thankful for the word, the, the scriptures that you have given us. We are thankful for your son, not only for his, his death and his resurrection, but, but for his life, his ministry, his teachings, his instruction. We're thankful, we're thankful for the community that you have made us, that you've invited us into, that we've found. We're thankful for the endless possibilities of growth and love and acceptance, healing, that we can find in the community. And we're thankful that we've been invited into the mission of redemption. We're thankful that we have been invited into this revolution that Jesus has begun that one day will be finished when all things are made new. There's no pain, there's no death, there's no sickness. And Father, we just pray that you would use us as flawed, as imperfect, as distracted as we are. That it would be your power that works through us, not our own might and strengths. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that all God's people this morning prayed, saying, Amen.